Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to the Sunridge Teaching Podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means that we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. We are gathering indoors right now, socially distanced and masked for now. We'd love to have you drop in. Just check our website, sunridgechurch.org, for the latest details on times and options. And now, here's our teaching for this week. We hope it leads you to encounter the way of Jesus more fully. Now, speaking of God's provision, it's time that we actually get on with our service. I stopped talking about camp. I stopped talking about events. And we continue our series through the book of Ruth. This morning, we're gonna be talking about poverty and and the power dynamics that are on display in the book of Ruth. But first, let's recap our story. Naomi and Ruth uh, originally lived in Moab, but there's been a famine in the region. And Naomi's husband and both of her sons have died. One daughter has chosen to leave uh, Naomi and Ruth and return to her family to try and create the life that she was hoping to have before her husband passed while the other daughter, Ruth, chooses to stay with Naomi and return with her to her city of origin, to Bethlehem. Naomi has experienced this devastating loss and she's overcome with grief as our chapter begins like this. It'll be on the screen. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. These opening verses are meant to do two different tasks, two different things for us. First, it's meant to open up a door to this concept of leveret marriage. Leveret marriage was this practice that allowed for family lines to continue. If a woman was married uh, and her husband died and she didn't have a son yet, then it was the responsibility, the obligation, the duty of the nearest adult male blood relative to marry this widow. And this was done in order to preserve the bloodline and bring wholeness back into the family line. And so by inserting this line here, this one quick little mention of Boaz at the very beginning of chapter two, this author is saying, look, I know how chapter one ended. I know things are dicey. They they look bad. I, I know things are rough, but this story isn't over. And the second goal of this opening verse is to actually place some distance between Boaz and Ruth. Not just physical proximity distance, but social status. Boaz is is a a man of standing, a Gabor Chayil, sometimes translated a mighty warrior. Boaz is the kind of guy who's well-known in his community. He has power. He has authority. He has friends. He has influence, wealth, and resources. In fact, it doesn't even really seem at all that he's been affected by this famine in the region. And so this author is reminding us that while Boaz is a man of status, this man of money, this man of wealth, he's well kept together, Ruth, on the other hand, is not. She doesn't come from any of those things. And so what we have here is Ruth going out, seeking permission from Naomi to go out and to glean. 
And this act of gleaning or harvesting grain was really common at this time. Levitical law required that uh, people who owned property, who had crops on their land, they actually had to harvest their crops in such a way that allowed for a sort of passive generosity. It didn't require any action on their part, but it was still generous. And so the edges of the field at this time were meant to remain untouched. You weren't allowed to harvest those things. And if you or your workers were out there harvesting grain and you happened to drop some on the floor, you had to leave that. All this was done so that the poor, widows, orphans, immigrants, any others, that they would have the opportunity to gather food to take home. And so you have Boaz, the top of this local community, landowner, wealthy, rich, resources. Then you have this poor, lowly Ruth down below, picking whatever crops she happened to find while she was out gathering. And this contrast between Boaz and Ruth is actually highlighted even further by the way that the overseer responds when Boaz inquires about her. It says this, starting in verse five, Boaz asks the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? Which is a problematic sentence. Uh, But the overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please, Let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. When this overseer responds to Boaz, the first words out of his mouth are meant to highlight her ethnicity, where she comes from. His first words to Boaz are essentially, she's not from around here. She's a stranger. Rather than centering her story and saying, uh, she came back with that relative of yours, Naomi, or or this is Naomi's daughter-in-law, instead of saying any of those things, he centers her ethnicity, her status, her people group, her region. And then he shares with Boaz that Ruth had then done the thing that immigrants and their children often do. Ask for permission. Ask for permission for a thing that was already hers. Permission to practice a right that already belonged to her, to partake in something that is actually protected by law. She asked for permission to glean the field, to work behind the harvesters, and then she worked, and she worked, and she worked barely stopping to rest. Because rest is a luxury. Rest means you have time at the end of the day. Rest means that you are safe. But Ruth is not any of those things. She has none of that. She's trying to provide for her family. She's trying to provide for her grief-stricken mother-in-law. She's trying to build a new life and a new hope. And so she can't stop for a single moment because no one else is going to do this for her. And so Boaz, seeing this, seeing her as she is in this particular moment, chooses to speak directly to Ruth. Verse eight, Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. In response to just a few words from his overseer, Boaz demonstrates awareness and he offers protection. The things that he offers to Ruth here are absolutely wild, unheard of at this time. Because again, Ruth is an immigrant. She is a foreigner, a non-citizen. She's not one of his workers. She's not really part of his family. 
And yet, in spite of all of these things, he chooses to bring her in. He tells her to stay here. Don't go anywhere else. You've been working all day. Don't leave here. Stay here and work in this field. Worried that she might wander into someone else's crops, he tells her to stay close to his working women, the people who are working for him. And then further, he tells his men to not lay a hand on her. Don't touch her. Don't harass her. Don't holler at her. Boaz understands exactly how vulnerable Ruth is. He knows that his men might try to manipulate her. They they might try to trick her or touch her. Most likely, Boaz is familiar with the other stories at this time that showcase the violence that men practice towards women, especially ones that are in these vulnerable positions. And so in order to protect her from that, to protect her from harassment, he directly admonishes his men to not lay a hand on her. Here we witness Boaz choosing to attach himself to Ruth. Earlier he had asked, who does she belong to? And now here he's bringing her in. He's saying, you're gonna belong to me. I'm gonna elevate you to a new social standing. He didn't do this privately. It's not like he went to some room in his house and said, hey, let's have a private conversation. No, he's out in the field in front of his overseer, in front of all of his other workers, pronouncing this thing directly to Ruth in front of their eyes. He's doing a new thing for her. But Ruth understands just how out of sorts this response is. In verse 10, at this, she bowed down her face to the ground. And she asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you might notice me, a foreigner? And again, we find this story circling back to where Ruth came from. This type of favor, this type of generosity wasn't always afforded to people, and it was especially not afforded to people from outside of the tribe, outside of your family, outside of your home. Boaz responds to Ruth. He says, I've heard about you. I've heard your story. I've heard about how you have struggled, all of the things that you have lost. I've heard about your journey. And I've heard about everything that you have done for your mother-in-law. But rather than simply just put a bow on this conversation and be like, okay, great, awesome. I'll go see you out in the field. Uh, Go, get after it, let's go. Instead of doing any of that, just wrapping this whole thing up, Boaz continues to bring Ruth into the inner circle. He does this by inviting her to the table. Boaz invites Ruth to the table. They've been working all day. I don't know if you've ever done manual labor. One time I mowed the lawn. Uh, But when you do those types of things, that that gruff uh, physical labor, uh, you get hungry. Uh, And so it's noon and Boaz invites Ruth to the table, offering her food and drink, treating her like one of his servants. At this time, a servant was a protected member of the household. It wasn't just a job. It was a safety net. It meant that you had security and food. And so he offers her not just a snack, not just a little nibble, like, hey, awesome, eat up. But he allows her to sit with them, to sit with his workers and to eat her fill. And once she's finished eating, she gets back up to go to work. And Boaz, once again, The second time tells his male servants, let her gather from the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stocks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. 
This isn't just an order of, of don't touch her, don't harass her, but it's also one of help her, assist her, make the job easier, don't make it any more difficult than it already is. And this practice was unprecedented in its time, and it completely uh, ignores any social constructs, any mention of hierarchy. It ignores all of those things. By choosing to do this, by choosing to completely rewrite these rules of how his own property is going to be used, of how this, this system and process of harvesting is going to go, by doing this, Ruth is able to collect a significant amount of grain. Uh, the correct phrase is an apha, or it's really enough for two people to eat for about a week. So in just a few hours of work, she's able to grab enough food for her and Naomi to eat comfortably for a week. What we're supposed to see here isn't uh, just an amount of food, be like, oh, that's great, like a whole week's of food, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, instead, we're supposed to recognize the extreme generosity of Boaz the way that he went above and beyond to provide for Ruth and for Naomi. But the generosity of Boaz isn't, isn't just about finances. It isn't just about resources. Boaz, in fact, shows us uh, an expanded version of generosity. He shows us uh, what it means to look out for people and to do it in a way that doesn't just meet a particular need, one particular need, or to help others survive, but how to set up a system that allows those in need to thrive and to flourish through the example of Boaz. There are several things that we can learn about what generosity is and how we can use our own positions, our own resources to provide hope and life to others. First, most obviously, we learn to be generous with resources. We see this in the way that Boaz allows Ruth to glean in his field. While Boaz remains unaffected or at least less affected than the people around him by this famine, he continues to provide a space for the poor, for the vulnerable, to continue to pick his crops for food. In a time when he could have tightened things up and said, you know what, uh, these are hard times for me, these are hard times for my family, so I'm just going to actually harvest those edges. I'm going to violate the law and harvest those edges. I'm going to pick up the grain from the ground. Instead of doing any of that, he stays true to what the law says. He follows all of the rules, once again showing that he is a man of standing. But when it comes to generosity, this image of resources is typically the picture that we are most familiar with. Those who have or who have extra, passing it on to those without. Whether it's by giving money, donating material possessions, whatever it is, that is our common image of generosity. For Boaz, generosity goes a step further. From his example, we learn to actually be generous with invitations. Rather than merely resolve himself to let Ruth go out into the field to pick grain for her and her family, Boaz took an extra step to invite her to lunch. And at this time, there were certain customs regarding the table, regarding when you ate with people. And they all specified who you could and who you could not eat with. And in this culture of honor and shame, uh, to violate those uh, social customs uh, was a huge deal. You could bring shame and dishonor onto your family. And actually, if we switch over to the New Testament, we can read more about these social norms and how well-regarded they are. Because when Jesus chose to eat, to enter the house of Zacchaeus, a tax collector, the people were furious. 
They were so mad at Jesus. To eat with someone outside of your circle, outside for what was normative of your status. It was a big deal. Because the table is this great equalizer. The table is this space where everyone, regardless of their beliefs, their looks, their thoughts, their lifestyle, where their family comes from, their own personal history or anything else, regardless of of what makes you, all of us come to the table to receive nourishment. We all come to the table to eat as equals. It's where we bump elbows and share utensils or in some cultures just eat straight up with our hands. It is a space where status is on the back burner. The table is sacred. And here, Boaz invites Ruth, invites this stranger, this woman, this outsider to sit with them, to eat with them, to partake in the meal. And it is an incredible act of generosity for Boaz. And so as we start to translate this story from this ancient context to our own, we can do so by considering the invitations that each of us has to offer. Like Boaz, maybe you have the chance to invite somebody to a meal. I know it's COVID, eating's kind of weird, so like work that out first. Uh, But you might have the chance to invite a coworker to your place, to go get lunch with a friend of a friend or, or someone who runs in your circle, but you only kind of like know each other. You would consider yourselves acquaintances or maybe less. Or maybe you go to a coffee shop every day or every week and you always see the same people there doing their thing. And so maybe it's your time to say, hey, can I sit with you? I see you here all the time. Can I talk with you? Can I get to know you a little better? Or perhaps your opportunity to extend an invitation isn't related to a meal. You don't wanna sit with these people. You don't wanna eat with them. You don't wanna worry about whether or not you have spinach in your teeth or what have you. Perhaps it's an invitation to just have a conversation, to just talk. And maybe it's something that you've been putting off for a long time because uh, it's just difficult or uncomfortable. Or maybe you just wanna understand what someone's thinking a little better. You wanna understand their point of view. And so you wanna have a conversation say, just, just help me understand this. Explain to me why you feel this way. And maybe it's someone who sits on the complete opposite of the political spectrum than you. Maybe it's someone with a draft, drastically different lifestyle than you, like, like they're a firefighter and you're a police officer. I don't, I don't know. I wrote that one just for Brit. (laughs) Some of you might be thinking, oh man, I know exactly who that is. I know that exact person that I I, I can be a little more generous with. That coworker, when they come to my office, I pretend I'm working. Maybe some of you are there, you already know. And maybe others of you just drawn a blank. And you're thinking, I have no clue. I don't know who I can be more generous with when it comes to invitations. And so regardless of of where you fall on that spectrum, if you can name the person's name or if you're struggling to come up with one, don't worry. Because in just a few weeks, there's this thing called the pre-summer retreat. You will have the opportunity to meet a stranger, to partake in chili together, an activity maybe, and hopefully develop some memories with one another. So if you're worried, you don't know where to go, you don't know who to ask, just wait a few weeks and we'll make sure you find somebody. But aside from all of our pre-summer promo, 
We can't forget that what Boaz did for Ruth here was significant. It shatters a worldview despite the social and cultural norms of the time, despite of how scandalous it may have seemed for an outsider to be treated with such high regard, despite the jealousy that these other employees, these other workers might have experienced because Boaz is offering this random girl to come sit with them at the table and all they've had to do is work over and over and over. Regardless of all of that, Boaz chose to be generous with his invitation to Ruth. He chose to provide her with a seat at the table. And finally, the last thing that we see Boaz teach us about is to be generous with shielding, to be generous with how we shield each other. If we go back to the very beginning of the story, the very beginning of chapter two, immediately after showing up, Boaz gives a blessing, but then he shows a level of social awareness that each of us should aspire to. He tells Ruth to stay close to his female servant. He commands his male servants to not harass Ruth while she's working. And towards the end of the chapter in verse 22, Naomi indicates that this was actually all about keeping her safe, keeping her protected. Because if she wandered into some other guy's field, these protections wouldn't be afforded to her. By stepping onto someone else's property, she'd be putting her life at risk. Her status, her ethnicity, her gender would make her a target for people who wanted to harm her. And so recognizing this situation that Ruth is in, Boaz steps in, he offers his protection, he shields her. He uses his power and his status within the community to shield Ruth in this moment. We've talked about this part of the story already, but I think this is one of the biggest things that we can take away from Boaz's actions here. I grew up having a sense of duty to protect people. My mom uh, was a, is, is a retired Sacramento police officer. My grandfather uh, is retired CHP. My mom is one of the most service-minded people I've ever met. Ah, I'm getting choked up. I've never talked to my mom before. <clears throat> and she always taught me to look out for people. Uh, have you ever met my mom? She always had a friend that was in need, always had somebody that she was looking out for. Whether it was my family, my friends, the people that I saw every day, people that I held relationships with, She always taught me, look out for people. And what Boaz shows us here is that this duty to protect, it isn't just about people you know. It's not just about people that we have relationships with. It should be expanded. It should be stretched to its limit to include strangers. It should be extended to include the vulnerable, extended to include the people that are most likely to be overlooked or oppressed by the system in which they find themselves. Ruth made it really clear. She's not from around here. She is a foreigner, and yet she willingly subjected herself to potential danger in the hopes of creating a new life for her family. And as soon as Boaz heard about her, heard about her story, he went out of his way to shield her, to protect her from wandering somewhere else, to protect her from the workers who might attack her or harass her while she was out working, to shield her from those who would look to take advantage of her and her position of grief and loss. Boaz looked at her and said, you're not gonna be another statistic here. I'm going to protect you. And in doing this, we we can start to connect the dots that lead us all the way back to Jesus. Boaz here serves as, almost like a prototype for the work that Jesus would do here on earth. The one who stepped in to shield a woman caught in adultery. 
the one who manifested food so that the helpless crowds that just followed him out into the wilderness could eat, the one who healed the ear of the man who had come to actually arrest him. Like Jesus, Boaz stepped in to shield others. The overlooked, the helpless, the injured, the outcast, the outsider, the leper, the ones who agreed with him and the ones who wanted to kill him. That is what Jesus did. And what's powerful about this list of things that we learned from Boaz, resources and invitation and shielding, on their own, they're fantastic. On their own, they are absolutely great. But it is together, when you combine these elements, that they are most powerful. Together, Boaz took these three things and he created a system a new system, a new way of doing things. And under this new system, under this thing that Bo has set up for Ruth, she was able to work all day without limits. Again, verse 17 tells us that by the end of the day, Ruth was able to gather an ephah of grain. Uh, Again, that's a, a week of food for two people. In less than a day, Ruth is able to gather significantly more than what is to be expected by doing this, by gleaning the field. And what's more, Boaz invites her back and says, don't just, don't just work today. Work till the end of the harvest. Work for another seven weeks. And by the best estimates, scholar, uh, scholars start to think that she was able to gather enough food to last her two-thirds of the year in seven weeks. This is an insane amount of food, an unexpected amount of generosity. And she was able to do this because Boaz set up a healthy system, a new way of doing things a life-giving system of resources and invitation and protection. And by doing so, Boaz serves Ruth and her family as a redeemer. Again, at the end of chapter one, Naomi's hopeless. She's ready to give up. She's ready to throw in the towel, call it quits. She identifies herself as bitter. She's angry with God for the things she has experienced. At the beginning of this chapter, when Ruth asks her, can I go out and do this thing and provide for us? In the Hebrew, she gives her a two-word response. Go, daughter. She's given up. She can barely muster the strength to wish Ruth well, to say, have a great time, be safe, watch the roads, don't talk to strangers. Instead, it's go, daughter. But here at the end of this chapter, because of the things that have happened at the end of Ruth's incredible trip out into a dangerous world, Naomi is full of life again. Verse 19, her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And she added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. When Ruth arrives home, we can feel the excitement and the life return to her. In response to this incredible amount of food that Ruth has brought home, the fight returns to Naomi's eyes or where she had previously been ready to just give up. She's now ready to live again. And she drops this crucial clue that will circle back to the first thing we talked about, this idea of Boaz as a redeemer, a guardian redeemer. 
And this, again, is primarily concerned with leveret marriage and the relationships between relatives that will become more apparent in the later chapters of this book. But it is clear that family line is not the only thing that Boaz has redeemed. His choices, his words, his character, he's a man uh, of good standing. All of those things have turned everything around for this one family. And one interaction, in one day, with one person, he has dramatically changed the course of both Naomi and Ruth's lives. Where there was once grief and loss and tragedy, there's now life and hope for a future. Where there was once darkness and bitterness, there is now uh, cracks of life breaking back in by creating this system for Ruth uh, that allowed her the opportunity to work and to be free from harassment, to be free from worry about her life, to be free of whether or not she was going to be in danger by doing all of these things together. Boaz had a hand in coaxing Naomi back to a place where she was alive again. She was ready to fight, where she was ready to keep on living. And you know where Boaz did this work of redemption? It wasn't here in a church building on a Sunday morning. It wasn't on a live stream with some folks watching from their couches. It wasn't a Tuesday night here at Quest at a program designed specifically for middle school students. It was at his work. It was at his office. The place that he went to every day. It was out there in those everyday spaces, the ones where we normally just want to put our heads down and just grind it out so that we can come home and turn on the NFL or watch baseball or whatever it is, do the things we actually love. It was out there in the real world, away from the safety of a pastor or a small group, clapping him on, giving him all the right things to say. It was out there that Boaz did the work of redemption for Ruth and Naomi. It was out there that he showed his generosity, where he offered his resources, offered an invitation, offered the chance to be shielded, presented awareness by paying attention to the world, paying attention to his culture around him. It is out there that each and every single one of us has the opportunity to partake and the ministry of reconciliation, to model the life of Jesus, to manifest the radical grace of a God who chooses us even when we're bitter, even when we're ready to give up, when we're angry and we blame him for the hurt in our lives, to the God who still, in those moments of our own weakness, offers us the chance to be alive again. It is out there that God is calling you, that God is calling each of us to become like Boaz to be people who redeem, to be the ones who invite, to be people who use our power and our resources and our status to build a better system. Let's pray. Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need help with something, if you have a question or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. Or if you'd like to know more about us, just go to our website, sunridgechurch.org, and you'll know what to do from there. We hope you'll listen in again next week. But in the meantime, wherever you go, deepen faith, bring hope, and live love.